Welcome to Pod Aloha, dedicated to preserving the heritage of surfing and the spirit of aloha. I'm Paul Strau, and I'm going to take you inside the stories of surfing's biggest influencers. And I'm Kieran McGuire. Today on Pod Aloha, Sean Thompson. Sean was born in 1955 in Durban, South Africa, the son of a surf contest organizer. As a teenager, he became a force on the local scene. At age 20, he won the 1975 Pipeline Masters, and two years later, the IPS World Championship. He was riding deeper in the tube than anyone, employing a thrilling and revolutionary style of pumping and moving around inside the barrel. Today's tube riding techniques are based on lines he worked out in the mid-70s. He's been inducted into the Huntington Beach Walk of Fame and the South African Sports Hall of Fame. Sean retired from competitive surfing in 1989. However, the classy, passionate, and articulate champ has stayed close to surfing and remains an incredible ambassador. In addition to launching various surf brands, he's written two books, The Surfer's Code and The Power of Eye. He co-produced the must-watch 2008 documentary, Bustin' Down the Door. Today, he works as an inspirational speaker, applying lessons from surfing to life. Hello, Sean. It's so cool to be with you today, and I'm so excited about talking about surfing's history as you saw it, you know, and uh, I have such fond memories of meeting you, and we're going to get into this, but good to see you, Sean. You look fabulous. No, it's great to be here, Paul, and, and of course, um, you know, you were one of the surfers that I admired most during my, my career, and, uh, you know, I saw the first, uh, one of the first surfing magazines I, I bought was... Uh, featured the surfer pole and uh, there's a picture of you in like a suit looking very stylish and it said Paul Strauch, the gentleman of surfing <laughs> and I said I want to be that dude <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah it's amazing how you know a few years after that our paths crossed and, and I've just Indeed. been a great admirer and it's, it's wonderful to be here with you. Thank you it's fabulous for me too but isn't it interesting you know when you know, in Hawaii, growing up there, and I imagine much like you growing up in South Africa, um, not having access to the outside world, you know, you really see everything right local. And it wasn't until 1959, other than seeing visitors come in, you know, like you too, uh, we never got to know who they were until they landed and were out in the water in Hawaii. But 1959, when John Severson started Surfer Magazine, all of a sudden we could read about people and, and see images, and it really brought it all to life, you know. And uh, it was so exciting. Yeah, back then, uh, certainly for us, being in the sort of far-flung outpost of, of surfing, I mean, Surfer Magazine was our lifeline. I'd get it when it came out every two months. I'd buy it at the local shop, and I'd read every single line in that magazine. I knew every single caption backwards. I mean, I can open a surfer <laughs> magazine from 1967 and someone can show me the picture and I can, I can still read back that caption. So I used to read them and read them and read them and collect them and stick them together when they started falling apart. So surfer magazine was, was, really, was really the big lifeline. And then when surf movies came to town, they used to come to town about you know, twice a year. That was the big thing too, to actually see those heroes in action oh i know uh, which was uh, which was amazing so yes we were a long way away and you know surfer magazine was our lifeline surf movies were our lifeline and then a lot of stuff came to us uh you know on 707s i mean the short book revolution was introduced uh into south africa in, in 1968 by two australians who came there with these new 
these new plastic uh, plastic machines designed by McTavish and mm -hmm. Young and George Greener. And uh, shortboards came to South Africa in the late 50s, uh, brought over by California lifeguards. So it was very much that connectivity between between surfers that um, sort of uh, brought South Africa, I think, um, to prominence. And in many ways, my my career has really been um, been connected uh, to Hawaii in many many different ways that most of your listeners don't, don't even know about. You know, my father was very badly attacked by a shark in. Um, 1946, yeah. shortly after he came back from the war, fighting in the war against the Nazis and the Italians. He was a tail gunner, wow. flying American marauders. So he met a lot of Americans during the, the North, Ameri North African campaign. And uh, yeah, he used to say, what did he used to say about Americans? He used to call them not Americans, he used to call them the Yanks. He said, <laughs> the Yanks are overpaid, oversexed, and over here. <laughs> so they used to call them, it was so funny. That's interesting, if you don't mind me asking, but your dad was a swimmer wasn't he an yeah, he open a, ocean swimmer he was a he was a champion swimmer uh, freestyle was, yes. was his stroke and you know he was hoping to go to the 48 olympics and mm -hmm. then got attacked by the shark and it's one of the first recorded incidents of a surfer being attacked by a shark he was wow. out there surfing he had his board with him and many years ago uh, well many years after his attack and a, and a few years ago i found this this article that he'd written it was a front page story in the mm -hmm. local newspaper a swimmer attacked by shark uh, eighth attack in the month. Eight, the eighth attack. That's how how bad Zambezi sharks were. But he wrote this article, and his opening lines were, "It was an ideal day for surfing and for sharks." And then he gets into the in, into the description. <laughs> oh my but, gosh! But after his, his attack, it was a long period of recuperation, and the best hand surgeon in the world um, was based in San Francisco. Hmm. So his father flew him from South Africa to San Francisco for surgery. And he had the surgery and then he went to recuperate in Hawaii. Uh, and I mean, this was 1947. Oh Can you imagine? Here's a guy from halfway around the world, okay. South African ex-swimmer attacked by a shark. And he uh, he met the Kahanamokus, he met the Kahanamoku family and uh, you know hung out with them. He stayed in the Royal when there was just the Royal and the Moana where there only two hotels That's on the right. beach back there. So, I think he had this deep appreciation for Hawaiian heritage and culture, and this love for 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 Duke, especially because Duke was his swimming hero mm -hmm. uh, during his uh, hopes for the Olympics, and and you know Duke became my hero even before I was a surfer because I knew I knew about Duke. Sure, yes. yeah, through my Good. dad, not 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 through his surfing, and only yes. later once I became a surfer in the mid '60s, I, I became uh, you know. I, I, came to know him for his serving. So there was a connectivity, I think, between uh, Hawaii and uh, and my father. And then, you know, as I grew up as a surfer, obviously, uh, you know, I just wanted to go to Hawaii and, and for my bar mitzvah present. Mm -hmm. So when you're 13 and you're Jewish, that's sort of your coming to manhood. Mm -hmm. My dad took me to Hawaii for the very, very first time as, as my present. And, you know, the world was a big place then. Gosh, yeah. And um, you know, we ended up uh, in Hawaii, and, and, and I have some great experiences that, wow. that I wanted to talk to you about about that trip too. No, absolutely. Gosh, it's, it's uh, been a long time, you know, that we've been in the water. Let me ask you a question: When was the last time you surfed? So I went surfing this morning. <laughs> I mean, I'm still very, very passionate about uh, my surfing. 
so I um, so it's been small lately. You know, I got back from South Africa about a week ago, and it's been really small down here in San Diego, where yes. in Encinitas, where, where my sister lives. So, but the water is beautiful. It's like 82 degrees, the warmest I've ever felt the water here in Southern Cal. And uh, I go, wow, it's so teeny. Uh, I, I brought my son's board down. He's got a little soft top. Uh-huh. So I like, stripped off the uh, stripped off all the cellophane off the soft top, put two fins in it, and I paddle out at uh, Cardiff Reef on the soft top, not realizing, you know, with no leash, not realizing that you're supposed to wax the soft top. So I'm in the water out there realizing, man, I'm out here, slipping around with this board. So I had my session uh-huh. with no wax. Oh, it gosh. It was so much fun just to take off and just be slipping and sliding around yeah. on this board and, and having as great a session as, right. as I would if I was out there on my 6-1. So, you know, surfing, it doesn't matter what you ride. and It doesn't matter, uh, you know, whether the wave is like 6 to 8 foot barrels or 12 to 15 feet. It, even if it's 2 to 3, I mean, I can just have that same sensation now as I did when I first stood up on my board That's in fabulous. 65, you know, the yeah. band Plenty. With my dad watching me in the white water, I'm going to get the same stoke. You know, living in California, uh, as I am now, and um, in my opinion, two of the greatest waves that you could possibly ride on a California coastline are waves at Malibu and waves at Rencon. How would you compare them? I I know they break at different times of the year, you know, because they take different swells. But, you know, if you had a choice, which one would you prefer to ride? And, and why? You know, I love both of the waves. Uh, I think Rincon, because those swells are generated, uh, you know, they're coming from the northwest. They come in a lot stronger, a lot faster. The wave is more powerful. The wave is more varied. So, I, I mean, I love Malibu. Certainly Malibu has that sort of mechanical perfection, uh, that speed. I mean, I love both ways. Certainly today, they're incredibly crowded. I mean, the crowd factor is just really, really... Uh, intense at both of them, and, and you know I've had great I've had great waves at both of them, but I, but for me, I um, I prefer Rincon. Do you? I, I do too. Yeah. Have you ever surfed at like eight to ten feet? Yeah, the biggest I've surfed Rincon. You know, Rincon doesn't really get over twelve feet. You know, it's like right. ten to twelve is like absolutely maximum. I mean, I've had I had, I you know a number of days out there. I mean, I, I remember having a twelve foot day that just me and George Greener in the lineup back in the. Mm-hmm. in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, but it's really best at sort of eight feet. Six to eight is mm-hmm. sort of where, where Rincon's best. Uh, in that river mouth section, when it's eight to 10, yeah. it's really challenging. It's a really great, I mean, I love that section. I don't know if I'm ready to take it on right now. I have to get, start getting super fit again. <laughs> but but I, I really love that that section through, through there, through the river mouth. I agree. I mean, with the right swell direction and take off, by that river mouth, yeah, and then just sail all the way through, blast through all the way through oh, the cove. And sometimes, I mean, I've ridden, gotten waves from uh, the indicator way out the back there. Yes. And like you get a solid eight to ten footer, and you get that right angle, that yeah. right sort of west northwest angle coming in there. You can ride it all the way to the cove. It's pretty rare, but it's really fun when you can do that. Oh, indeed, it's good. Yeah. You, you kick out, and that's it. You're done for the day. Yeah, pretty <laughs> much. Yeah, you're over. Well, that paddle will kill you too. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> Four or five waves from the way out there at the indicator. I mean, uh, but you know, in addition to the soft top that you rode today, I mean, what kind of board do you typically ride? I mean, living in Southern California, it's very seldom that as you get big like Hawaii. But on a daily basis, if you're going to go surfing, which would be the first board that you would grab? So I got to, I got to tell you something funny. You know, 
the whole surfing market and, and, and surfing, everyone thinks it's, man, it's like 14 to 24. That's like the key demographic, you know, 14 to 24. So about a year ago, you, you know, Al Merrick and the Channel Islands crew be making my boards for, mm-hmm. I mean, I was the first pro surfer ever to get a board from, uh, from Al. Al Merrick maintained a really close relationship to the family and uh, you know, he sort of segued out of shaping his son, Britt, Yes, now shaping great guy, great young surf. I mean, I knew Britt when he was when he was about two or three years old. So I go to Britt and the crew at Channel Islands, and, and I said, you know, I'd really changed my boards over the last two years. I've gone from much lower entry, more volume under the front chest, so that they paddle really well and they skim up, and still using a single to double concave with a light V off the tail, so they can still really maneuverable, fast, great surfboards for carving. I said, you know, I think there's there's a market. And we collaborated with um, with SurfTech. They had some interesting new technology, a combination of epoxy and polyurethane. Mm-hmm. And I said, what I want to do is I want, I want, to, I want to build a model with uh, with these guys, with SurfTech. Britt shaped it. And you know, for a year, we worked on trying to get the, the board right for a guy that's, or a woman that's just interested in carving surfing. No aerials, just carving tubes. Something that would surf and go well, whether it was two feet or whether it was it was eight feet, you know, board with a wide range, something that was light and super tech mm-hmm. with, 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 with the latest technology. So we developed the board and the guys uh, put it into the marketplace and, and the guys from SurfTech came up, they said, hey, Sean, you won't believe this. It's the number one That's Congratulations. Number, can you believe it? I'm going, wow, there's been, we've done zero publicity, zero marketing. Uh, and, you know, we're going to start doing it now because cause I called it the code because it's, it's very much aligned with what I do yes. with large organizations and, and, and young people, you know, how to find your purpose, how to find your path. What makes it special, though? I mean, um, in terms of so, the, the design, is, so it, is it got a, a lot of rocker? No, no, no. It's, 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 the, it's the absolute uh, opposite. So there's so many amazing boards out there in, mm-hmm. in the marketplace right now. I, I want you to get a board that would firstly paddle really well. Uh, so number one, you ain't gonna have a good time if you can't catch a wave. So the board has a very low entry, and mm-hmm. also it has a volume profile in which you've got a lot of volume under your chest, and it has kind of a seventy style beak nose. So the volume's carried all the way to the tip of the board. Mm-hmm. You know, most modern, modern boards they have a flip, and the noses will be really thin, and they sort of they they serve not really, purpose. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're, they're superfluous. You don't yeah. really need them. So you know, I wanted to make sure that every inch counted. So we've got this forward volume. Uh, really fast trimming profile when you're paddling on it and then also as you get older you lose that explosion to your mm-hmm. feet you just lose it that's just what happens so I wanted a board that was able to support you on the explosion to your feet and then I wanted a board that would carve and be as fast as anything else in the water so we used the single to double concave I mean I started using I was the first surfer to use single to doubles mm-hmm. and that was back in 1975 my shape in South Africa, a guy called Spider Murphy developed these single to double concaves mm-hmm. that I used to, you know, ride in the tube at back door and off the wall. Right. So uh, we used that and then we, we put a nice little V off the off the um, tail. Uh, we used the, both the epoxy and the polyurethane construction, epoxy in the middle to give it that super lightness, uh, polyurethane on the outside rails wow. to give it that uh, similar spring that you get with a normal board and mm-hmm. also We've got like a, a carbon fiber center strip on the top and the bottom to limit the chatter. Sometimes with EPS boards, extruded polystyrene, sure. glass yeah. with epoxy, they have a stiffness to them. So you get this chatter. So we think we've, we've really limited that down and you know, taken the best of EPS and taken the best of polyurethane, combined it into 
into one board and, and I think people are really, really liking it. Super light, the boards weighing between, you know, five, eight and six pounds. So, I mean, really light performance, wow. but strong, you know, epoxy makes them, makes right. them uh, really strong. We've got these like carbon, uh, almost like carbon foot pads at the back to prevent uh, denting and delam. So, you know, we've tried to make a board for sort of the every man, a high sure. performance board that anyone can jump on and ride easy and it's been a you know it's been a, been a fun project and a lot of people say to me hey sean you're still surfing i said still surfing man. i'm a <laughs> core surfer i'm never gonna i'm never gonna stop uh surfing. but you're a big guy i mean you're like six one yeah i'm six one i ride six one are you right a six one too well our model doesn't actually come in a six one it comes in a five ten and a six two so i'm on the and a six four so i've been riding six two six four and, uh-huh. and when i get a bit fitter again as a winter approaches, I definitely want to try the five ten. The five ten looks quite sweet. That's fair. Uh, so you know, I like to try to try to try to push myself um, in equipment. But I want to tell you the story, and uh, it's 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 an interesting story. And I think your your listeners will be interested in this. So I told you I went to Hawaii for the first time in 1969. Yes. With my dad, it was was my bar mitzvah present. And when I was in South Africa recently, I just got back about a, a month ago. Uh, while I was there, I met an old friend of my father, a guy called Derek Berry. We used to call him uh, the Baron Van Berry. And uh, I, I used to have a company back in the <coughs> 80s. It became very popular called Instinct. And I had this logo that was on all that. our boards. And, and yeah. Derek actually designed the logo. And my dad had written him this letter. And I'd never seen this letter. And he wrote him this letter on Friday the 11th of December, 1969. Wow. From Makaha Shaw's apartment, right on the point overlooking Makaha. We were on the well. top floor, and we we overlooked Makaha. And we went to the North Shore when we landed. We we went we landed in in, in Waikiki, and spent a day in Waikiki. Surfed my first surf in uh, in Hawaii. We stayed at the Outrigger. Was it Pops? Was it Populars out there? Yes. And, and uh, I remember out there like paddling out. It's first time I'd ever surfed over reef. Uh-huh. And I'm padding up into that translucent water going, whoa, this reef, it's like so scary and I'm a populist. <laughs> so then we decided, okay, well, we're going to now we're going to go out to the North Shore. And we drive out to the North Shore and you come to that split in the road, H1, H2. You can go to the west side mm-hmm. or you can go to the North Shore. So for some reason, my dad goes west instead of going north. And we end up driving up to Makaha on a perfect four to six foot day that beautiful blue water and my dad looks at this and he sees the apartment right there he says this is where we're spending the winter so we <laughs> spent the winter for six weeks right there at uh, at makaha shores so this friend sees me inside and says you know i've got this letter that, my, that your dad wrote me on uh, on the 11th of december 1969 my god so he writes this Ten days ago, the islands were hit by the biggest swell ever. Fifty houses along Sunset Beach were washed away, and the North Shore was declared a disaster area. Waimea was breaking at 40 feet, and it was unreal. Two days previous, Waimea was like a big lake, dormant and smooth. Makaha was breaking at 30 to 35 feet and was the only surf rideable. You can't imagine it until you see it. Greg Knowles, Hemming, George Downing, Paul Strauss, Trent. Giants with lion's hearts. How about that? 
giants <laughs> with lions' hearts. It's breath, breathtaking to see these guys take off, and when they drop to the bottom, all there is is a giant wall that they try and make. It's mind-blowing. Sean surfed it at 15 feet, and my heart was in my mouth every time he took off. The best break he surfed was Haliiva at 12 feet. What a wave, scary as hell, and the ride finishes up in about two feet of coral. After he rode Haliiva, Paul Strau came up to me and said, Sean was fantastic. He's got a lot of guts. How about that? <laughs> no kidding. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. How about that? I just found this a month ago. Oh, my god! And it's gosh. amazing. Talk about paths crushing. It's 1969. It's 49 years ago. How about that? Oh, my that? gosh. It's a long time ago. I came across yeah. my hero in a while. And but he said to, me, said to my dad, I've got a lot of guts. <laughs> but there were very special moments, and I'll never forget meeting you. And it was at Makaha. Yeah. You know, and... And we had surfed in the morning, and I think it might have been on that trip. That yeah, you, it was, totally was on that trip, yeah. Oh, yeah, and oh my gosh, I couldn't believe. And your dad was so gracious, was amazing, and yeah. yeah. I and, but you, you both were really incredible as a, as a father-son. Yeah, you know, your relationship a, was very strong. I'll never a, forget that. He's a wonderful man. So I remember paddling out on that one day, I think it was two days before the massive swell. It was about 25 feet, massive surf, and I remember paddled out and um, there was you, Keith Paul, Rolf Arnes, George Downing, Randy Rarick, uh, I think Hemmings and I remember uh, Randy turning around to me and saying, Sean, what the hell are you doing out here? I had a few ways and then I just got Drawn, so. Yeah, no, that was an unforgettable day. Yeah. I mean, I don't think many people would stand up to compare with what you accomplished at Pipeline, especially at such an early uh, time in history, um, riding a, a board that was not designed for that type of wave. You know, uh, and I just want to get your comments on, on how you were able to do what you did, because the, the consequences were very severe. And I, I know we both have seen many people uh, sustain, you know, super bad injuries. Yeah, I think today people just don't realize how dangerous pipeline is. You see the best surfers in the world, Kelly, and um, you know his whole crew out there, Jamie O'Brien, and. Um, all these, you know, amazing young guys, Gabriel Medina, John John, John yeah. John. I mean, John John's so gifted, um, and it seems like they never wipe out. They've always got it under control. And even when they do wipe out and get thumped, they just jump back on their boards and mm. and paddle back out. I think in my day there was a lot more fear associated with it. I certainly think we didn't have the the incredible equipment that the guys are riding today, and also our techniques weren't as well uh, developed. So there was much more of a danger factor, I think, because the the chances of having a bad wipeout were a lot higher. We just weren't as good as the guys are today. So there was always, with me riding pipeline, I mean, there was a big fear factor that I had to overcome. I mean, I had a picture of pipeline right above my bed, John Peck, and I'd look at it every night when I went to bed and go, wow, so radical, I'm gonna have to go and ride yeah. there uh, one day. But you know, I was determined, committed, but still those first few years trying to come to terms with it, it was very difficult. Luckily, I had this board that the shaper in South Africa, Spider Murphy made me, came to be called the Pink Banana. It was a fluke. It had so much curve in it. By mistake, I'd asked him to 
make me a board ba- based on some pictures I bought back of a Red Brewer mm. 8 gun, you know, the classic gun from mm-hmm. Sunset Beach and, you know, with that beautiful curve and that sort of nose flip so you wouldn't pearl on those late takers with Sunset. And when he was glassing it, he couldn't get enough curve in the blank, so he, as it was drying after the lamination, he put bricks on it and it just curved the board, it bent it, so it made it like a banana. And then I'd asked for a red board and the glasser at the time, the guy who owned the company, had some white pigment left in the bottom of the mixing bowl and just poured the red in and it went pink instead of that. <laughs> so it was a pink banana. <clears throat> but the board had so much curve that it enabled me you know, to get over the edge really late, later than the other backside guys. Mm-hmm. And the curve really fitted in well and enabled me to you know, be able to hit it really hard off the bottom and jam it really hard off the top, whereas most boards would just pearl. Right. You know, they, they didn't have that modern curve. I mean, it was the first board, I think, with modern curve, and that board was made in, in 1974. So that board gave me, I think, both a technolo- technological edge and also gave me confidence. And that's what you need at PUP. You really need to have that absolute confidence and that absolute commitment. Because when you're paddling for that wave, as you know, Paul, when you're paddling for that wave and it's 12 feet coming in from the northwest and you're paddling and paddling and it's low tide and you've got that northeast trade wind just roaring up that face, being magnified, creating these ridges along the face, mm-hmm. almost blinding you. And as you look over the edge, you look down and you see it's a black coral of death, man. That is you know, black coral of death. You make a mistake on that takeoff. And I mean, you know the guys that have died there. I know guys I know. That, have, that have died there. Okay, not many people have died over the last few years, but... In our day, a lot of guys had bad things happen to them. So there was almost like a barrier, fear barrier, that one had to actually break through to get over there. And you know, I often tell the stories at big corporate events, like, so how do you get over the edge? And for me, it was almost like an epiphany. It was like, one more stroke, one more stroke, one more stroke, just take three more strokes, hit it, hit it harder, hit it really hard and go over that edge and drop in. And you know, once you commit to that takeoff, you can generally make the wave and with the pink banana I usually made the takeoff and I rode that board for five winters. No kidding. Five winters and in five winters I never ever lost it on takeoff. That's how amazing that board was. So I rode it for five winters, never oh, lost good. it on takeoff, broke it in half and on the sixth winter I got buried into that coral. <laughs> <laughs> how long was it again, that board? Seven ten. Seven ten. Eighteen oh, and three quarters, three and an eighth thick and Spout it, Nephi the shape at the time still makes uh, replicas of it. So it was, it was a, it was a great time. I look back on it very fondly. Oh my gosh, that's amazing, Sean. You know, um, I remember in nineteen, I think it was nineteen seventy-one, that uh, Eddie Aikau came to South yeah. Africa, and at that time, I mean, apartheid was still, you know, the way it yeah, was. It was. You know? We and, lived under apartheid. Yes. Yeah, and your dad. Invited it was 1972, Eddie, yeah. 72, and he, he invited Eddie to stay because yeah. he had no place to go. Yeah, well, what, what happened was, I mean, how about the irony for this? You know, we had invited um, Eddie out, and because, uh, you know, my dad loved, my dad started the first pro contest in South Africa, which was that contest. It was first called the Durban 500 and then the Gunston 500. You know, my dad just outlast. Hawaiian, the Hawaiian heritage and culture. I mean, we were the only, I think we were the only house in the whole of South Africa where you had to leave your shoes outside. Old <laughs> <laughs> Hawaiian custom, right? Yeah, like Hawaiian custom. You know, people, you know, all my dad's friends would come in in their swanky outfits and not your shoes outside. Oh, classic, gosh. My dad never used to wear socks. I mean, put on a tuxedo, no socks. You know, he, he, he just, he loved, you know, what Hawaii uh, represented. And anyway, yes. so, so Eddie, 
came out and he was supposed to be staying in the Malibu Hotel. Um, and the manager of the Malibu Hotel said, no, you're not allowed to stay here. Uh, you're black, you're not allowed to stay here. So, of course, my dad heard about it, was outraged. Um, and, um, you know, we drove down, I drove down with my dad. We had a little beach buggy and we grabbed, grabbed Eddie and yeah, Eddie came and stayed with us, you know. Oh, gosh. And, um, you know, I was, I mean, I was like 15 at the time and I would take uh -huh. Eddie surfing every morning and, um, you know, we'd have dinner with Eddie and breakfast and, and, and um, you know, it's not, I can't say that as a 15 year old I took Eddie Aikau, the legend, under my wing, but, you know, I really, I think, tried to show him that, yes, it was a repressive <coughs> regime mm -hmm. and, um but there were some good people living in the country. Yeah, that's beautiful. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I think Eddie never forgot that. You yeah. Know? He never forgot. And, you know, we introduced him to, to the Holmes family, to Jody, to uh, Lynn Holmes and her husband, Daryl, and they, they were Australians. And mm -hmm. they took him down to Jeffrey's Bay and showed him amazing uh, spirit and hospitality. And, you know, her, their daughter, Jody, now runs all the pro contests in I Hawaii. Know. Isn't she that lives, amazing, she, though? She, she My gosh, what a and, connection. Yeah, and then Lynn and Daryl had moved over there and stayed with our cars for a long time. So, you know, that connectivity between South Africa, Australia, and Hawaii is, is it goes beyond people just going there for the good waves. Yes, you know what I mean? like, of course. Uh, yes, the good waves are, are really important, but there's a connectivity, I think, of, of spirit there. You yes. Know, like where we grew up. Uh, you know, there's a spirit amongst the Zulu people called Ubuntu, which is very similar to, to Aloha. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I grew up in a Jewish family, and you know, our, our, our Jewish religion is all about family in the same sure. way that Hawaii is all about a Hana. That's right. So you know, there's there's connectivity there that that, that, that transcends surfing. But surfing amplifies it, and I think magnifies it. But certainly, you know, we we were part of that culture. And, you know, to see, I mean, how could you leave Eddie Car mm -hmm. um, on the street? And Eddie never forgot it, and you know. Sometimes, you know, when, when I visited Hawaii, you know, he invited us down. My cousin Michael and I would go down and visit visit them on the graveyard. And he was always him and Pops and Myra and Sol. And, yes. You know, they're always very welcoming mm -hmm. to us, always very hospitable, uh, always very um, respectful. And I felt very, you know, very honored <clears throat> yes. by that. And, and, you know, when things started to get heated between uh, the Aussies in 1976, and, you know, I sort of got pulled in a few years later into all the, the heat with with uh, you know different factions in Hawaii you're talking about yeah in Hawaii that yeah. uh, you know yes. the, the archives were there and and uh, I think um, you know the reason that was diffused was because you know Eddie saw the world and the family and the best of the best people in Hawaii mm -hmm. saw that uh, you know Hawaii was in the center of this massive ocean, but that all the other countries are also in some ways touched by the ocean. You know, I mm -hmm. read this book called Surface Code many years ago, and I wrote in it, all surfers are joined by one ocean. So there's that connectivity that I think the enlightened people mm -hmm. in Hawaii see there. Their, I mean, to use a, a metaphor, you know, their, their perspective is not insular. Their perspective is worldwide. And aloha is not just for the island alone for the world yes right beautifully stated mm -hmm. yeah I, I totally agree with you and the Aikawas did and still do represent that yeah. aloha spirit yeah. and that genuine genuine uh, genuine yeah. you know a lot of people talk aloha but hey a lot of a lot of the talk is talk 
Yes. But, but you know, the, the, the genuine, the people that, that I've met, you know, Hawaiian surfers that, uh, that I admire, they were like, you guys were like royalty. Well, we felt the same way about you. Well, we, I mean, yeah, we were just coming up hot, hot jump. No, but I'm all, rest, in all but, seriousness, I mean, nobody yeah. rode pipeline like you and got, you know, tucked no, in. No, and, thank you. Yeah, no, you no, no, seriously, on a board that really, if you looked at it today, I mean, that, that blue rail board that you used to ride, yeah, yeah. my God, it was it was like a riding an ironing board, really, yeah, compared yeah, to they were very, very, what they're using straight now. compared to. But I wanted to ask you how you were able to get that board, you know, so delicately in trim and just, you know, position yourself and come through those barrels. No one was doing that at the time you started doing that. You set a whole trend, you know, in terms of tube riding. You're really, in my opinion, you're responsible for modern tube riding. But thank you. And thank I mean you, that yeah. sincerely, yeah, really, Sean. Yeah, it was, it was quite a, a change. And I think a lot, of it had to do with, with a couple of things, maybe three things. One was that where I grew up at the Bay of Plenty in, in South Africa was very long technical tube. So, so I was used to these incredibly powerful barrels. Mm -hmm. And I tuned my boards with the shaper in South Africa, a guy called Spider Murphy, really to be able to to ride those sorts of barrels. And you know, we developed this single to double concave, which is sort mm -hmm. of the basic bottom or most modern most modern surfboards. So it's a single concave running to a double concave. Single concaves are really fast, but sometimes they, they, they can be quite sticky. So right. it was a single to concave. Was a double concave at the tail? Yeah, a double concave in the tail. But, but was that designed to like split the water so they give you more control? Yeah, it was designed to, to almost like a V to be able to, to carve it up on the rail. So uh -huh. it didn't have that sort of tracky feeling of a, of a pure concave. So not as quite as fast as um, as the as a pure concave but almost like concave v's mm -hmm. so it really <clears throat> enabled you to get the board on the rail and because i i think i had so much speed um across the just across the wave if i could trim it up on that my front foot on the concave mm -hmm. get that massive acceleration and back foot on the on the double and if i could turn i could you know wait up wait up the double one side of the double concave and that would give me the acceleration and then when i went flat i'd get the acceleration from the the single, so uh -huh. I could come from a lot further back. And then because the Bay of Plenty was, uh, it wasn't like a perfect barrel, there was like lots of things happening and it hit different parts of the sandbag. I had to, to figure out ways to get around sections. So I developed that whole concept of like carving inside the tube. Uh -huh. And I think I was young, I was super fit. I mean, I was, I was a good swimmer and really fit and loved, loved surfing. You know, I would surf eight hours a day, no problem. Um, I had that, that confidence to be able to like perhaps unconsciously slow down time. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of time in some ways to think about what I was what doing. I was doing. Yes. And and maybe I, in my mind I had more time than other other guys to really focus on like really starting to turn and maneuver inside the tube as opposed to, you know, that whole concept of just like putting the arrow back and shooting that arrow and shooting that arrow in a straight line through the tube, getting through that tube mm -hmm. as fast as you could from as far back as you could. And yes, I think I could, you know, get as far back as the top guys, but certainly I was enabled me to, you know, to actually ride inside the tube and maneuver inside the tube. And then also the board, I had a big single fin on like a nine inch single fin, big wide base, six inches, mm -hmm. tight, tight uh, tail on my seven footers, 11 inch tail. Uh, so they were very, very stable. So I could get right up on that foam ball mm -hmm. and I could sit right on that foam ball and the board wouldn't just spin out. Because of the length, the, the draft because, of the fin. Yeah, long yeah. fin. 
And, and the fin was a very foiled fin. Um, you know, George Greener was such an amazing innovator. And mm-hmm. you know, that while that foil fin, it might not have been the fastest fin, it was the most stable fin. It had mm-hmm. this, you know, this water flow around it that really gave you this incredible um, stability. So I could just sit back there and, 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 and really like prolong the time that I spent in the tube. And then also, I think I was quite a sort of a thoughtful, introspective guy and I'd um, I really really felt that if you concentrated really hard and many years later I read and, and met this Hungarian psychologist this guy called Mihachik Sintmiha who developed this concept of flow mm-hmm. which is a state of uh, optimal performance through optimal concentration when the risk is at its highest and the utilization of your skills are at their maximum you get into the state of flow and certainly that's what I was in. I felt the time was expanded. Time was slowed down. That when I was surfing at my very best inside the tube, I could actually control that wave. I mean, you can't actually control the wave, but I felt. That's mm-hmm. what I felt. I felt I had this incredible mind power and skill and concentration and confidence that I could curve that wall to my will. Um, so that you know, that's that's what I felt, and and then I just took that technique to Hawaii. So while in South Africa there was no media. Uh, there was no magazines, there was no mm-hmm. photographers. I could perfect the technique at the Bay of Plenty and then just take it to back door, take it to off the wall, take it to sunset, take it to pipe. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I look back on that time, I look back on that time very fondly. I think all of us have those moments when you push your surfing to the absolute limit. And when I think of it now, yes, you know, I had comp- a lot of competitive success during that period and I was stoked you know, yes, to won the world title and helped my masters and all that sort of stuff. But you know, when I, when I really think, you know, like, what was that? What, what like really? I, I was proud of. I was proud of that, that pure art mm-hmm. of surfing, my mom, and that's what I thought it was. You know, all of us, you and Jerry and Heckman, BK, and all those people of the time. The surfing was art. It wasn't derivative. Mm-hmm. You know, we weren't looking over our shoulders, trying to recreate what someone else had done before. We were like creating our own art mm-hmm. and and that was a special period because everyone was so unique you know Jeff Hackman style and Barry Kanaipuni's style and Paul Strauss style and Joe Lopez's style and then even the Australians you know Peter Townend and yes. Robert Bartholomew and Mark Richards and right. Ian Cantor and Peter Townend there was no derivation there it was all it was very unique yes I mean I you know you were my hero and I admired your surfing but I never tried to copy anyone surfing. I never tried to hold my hands like you did, even though I loved your surfing. I never tried to hold my hands like Barry Kanaipuni did, mm-hmm. even though I loved his surfing. I never tried to, you know, hold my hands like Jeff Hackman, but I must say I loved that bottom turn of his. Wow. I know. And certainly I tried to get that same kind of power out of the the bottom turn. So, you know, I, I think that that yes, I'm I'm proud of my competitive success and love being a competitor and pushing the envelope there and you know, helping establish pro surfing, but I'm, I'm very proud of that artistic time. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I think for me the most important thing of all was being stoked. I, I can categorically say that during my career, I surfed more than anyone else in the entire world. And I surfed more than anyone else, not because I wanted to practice and get better. I surfed more than anyone else in the world because... I was so stoked. So having that enthusiasm 
having that fire, uh, I think is the most important thing. Yes, you know, you love it. And the more you do it, the better you get. But underlying the, the wish uh, to be the best surfer in the world or to be the world champion has got to be that pure, pure stoke. Mm -hmm. That stoke that you have when you stand up and away for the first time when you're nine years old. And, and I think I was lucky in that I managed to maintain that throughout my career. Never once in my entire life, uh, and even in the later stages of my career when many of the surfing events were held in the most mm -hmm. terrible surfing, you know, two-foot surf in Wrightsville Beach or, you know, one-foot surf in Florida, you know, three-foot surf in France. Uh, and I'm, I was a big guy competing against these super-duper young, young people. Never did I, I think, oh, I've got to go out there and practice. And I want to get out there and surf mm -hmm. and, and, and try to be the best I can be. Mm -hmm. And I think I really got that... Like just do your best, be the best you can be from uh, my dad. You know, my mm -hmm. dad was, he wasn't about the win. My father was about just being the best that you can be. When I was in South Africa um, a month ago, we were there to celebrate 50 years of pro surfing. So the first event that he started was called the Durban 500, celebrated 50 years this last year. Amazing. So the, um, the organizer had been contacted by a couple of my pals here in Santa Barbara and said, you know, we, we'd love to surprise Sean and erect something for his father there at mm -hmm. the event to memorialize his contribution mm -hmm. to surfing because he loved to help young people. He helped young surfers. I mean, you know, I'm helping Eddie Akal. That's just a thousandth of what he did. I mean, he helped so many young surfers, help the country in so many ways um, to inspire young people. So uh, they said, okay, well, we'll put up a, a bench and, and a plaque. We'll put up a plaque or which one's that? And they said, but Sean's got to write what he wants on the plaques. Um, so it wasn't really, it was supposed to be a surprise, but it couldn't really be. So, mm -hmm. so uh, 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 this is his mindset, and this is what he told me through my career. I said uh, on the plaque I wrote uh, to Ernest Connie, Connie Thompson, uh, 1923 to 1981. He died when he was 57 from a heart attack, tragically. Mm -hmm. um, he loved surfing, and he loved surfers and he loved the honor of competition. When you win, you win like a gentleman. When you lose, you lose like a man. So for me, those are always always powerful words, is that, that, that losing is just important as winning. Yeah. And how you carry yourself, and how you see yourself, and self-esteem and self-respect mm -hmm. and honor, honor. Mm -hmm. Super important. I mean, I never screamed and cried and shouted after a loss. He would say to me, Sean, that judge's decision is carved in stone. He said, no matter how much crying you will do, you will never change the decision. You accept the decision. When you win, win like a gentleman. When you lose, lose like a man. So I think, yes, competition was very, very important to me, but it wasn't the only thing. Mm -hmm. And I think when you look at competition that way that it's not the be all and end all I think you can have a much more balanced love for surfing and I think because your love is balanced then you can have much longer lasting affiliation with it sure. um, and I mean I had a long career during my career I mean I had the longest career then I mean of course my records have all been broken but I was the oldest guy to win the youngest guy to win mm -hmm. being on the tour for the longest uh, just because I you know I loved it and when I retired 
I retired on my terms. I said at the beginning of the year, it's going to be my last year. It's going to be my, and, and it was amazing. Every event I went to, the, the, you know, they were the organizers of events were very respectful and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I loved my last year just like I loved my first year. Mm -hmm. So I just, just, uh, yes, so, I mean, I just have so much love, love for surfing and love for surfers and love for, for you know, where surfing is going yeah. and where surfing has been. Well, yeah, Emily, uh, you know, a lot of my feelings and a lot of my thoughts about surfing, and you, you couldn't have said it any better. And as a role model for surfers everywhere, I mean, you put your heart into something and you never walk away ashamed or you never walk away angry, you know? And mm -hmm. it just, it's part of being fulfilled. You know? Totally. Yeah, and it, and it grows, you know? And you are so right, it's part of being fulfilled, you know? <clears throat> Every heat I ever served in my entire life, I gave it everything mm -hmm. I had. I never looked back at a heat and said, you know, shoulda, woulda, coulda, ever. I gave it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think when you approach heat that way, there's never any uh, lingering uh, doubt or resentment or bitterness. And, Man, I shoulda beaten him. I shoulda. It's like you give it. Yes. You give it and you give it again and you give it everything. And then you walk away, like you say, you walk away proud, you walk away like a warrior. You basically said everything that, you know, one would, I certainly would expect you to say, you know, but before we close, is there anything else that you'd like to yeah. leave, leave the audience with a, a thought or two that uh, would carry with them about you personally and, and what you stand for in terms of, you stand for great things in no, surfing, your you. accomplishments thank and you. your lifestyle, thank you. you know, and your connection with your dad. You know, and a lot of others uh, have been inspired by you, Sean. Well, thank you, thank you for that. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm so honored to be involved with <clears throat> with the surfing lifestyle and surfing heritage and and culture and you know all the projects I've tried to do during my surf career. Mm -hmm. You know, starting my first company, Instinct. Yes. Um, you know, I called it Instinct because the best moments in surfing are when you're inside the tube, and the best moments inside the tube are when you're operating on Instinct, and then. Mm -hmm. My wife and I created a super cool company called Solitude, and I made a film called Busting Down the Door, which was um, a movie that inspired many people about what you have to do in order to be um, successful. And then, uh, you know, my books, my first book, Surface Code, mm -hmm. um, was really a metaphor for how one can ride through life. Mm -hmm. And um, then, <clears throat> then when I lost my son, I lost my beautiful son Matthew when he was uh, 15 and a half, right when the book was was about to be published uh, I sort of my life went down a different path and, and and my beautiful boy just had learned this dangerous game at school it's called the choking game and he played it and killed him and I, I became very uh, empowered and motivated to help young people and people generally with choice you know because your choices are what defines you and your choice can be the difference between life and death. It can be the difference between living a great, purposeful life and living a shallow life. Mm -hmm. So I became very um, interested in, you know, why do we choose what we do? Why do we make the decisions that we do? And um, I was very uh, fascinated by influence and inspiration which is the essence of the study of leadership. You know, how can you inspire and influence others 
to achieve a common goal. Not your goal, mm -hmm. but their own goal. <clears throat> so I went back to grad school, spent a couple of years doing a Master of Science in Leadership and looking at the psychology and looking at the research behind, behind leadership. And <clears throat> I came to discover that all of us have this incredible power mm -hmm. to create transformational change in others by what we say and by what we do. And the simple philosophy of you drop a stone creates a ripple. Yeah, the you build a wave. Circles, yeah. yeah, you drop a stone, creates a ripple, and you build a wave. Mm -hmm. So um, I thought, wow, is it is it possible to create a sustainable business project uh, built around this that can impact people? And when I say a business project, a project that fo is focused on both profit and purpose. So how can you influence and inspire people but have an, have an economic engine so it can sustain itself? Because yes, we all do lots of things free. We all do, we're all motivated by philanthropy and altruism, but there needs to be funding to keep it going. Yes. And the only way you're gonna get the funding is from corporations. So how can you get corporations involved to create a positive wave? Drop a stone, create a ripple, build a wave. How can you get companies helping to build this wave? So last year, I decided to do an experiment in South Africa. So I uh, collaborated with one of the largest investment groups, largest financial groups in South Africa called Liberty Group. And uh, I connected up with a, with a big publisher down there, Pam McMillan, who, who published my book. Mm -hmm. And what we were going to do is do this tour called the Positive Wave Tour. So I was going to go around and speak at schools, funded by this company called Liberty Group, who would get their branding at the schools, who would get mentions on all the TV talk shows and social media. So they would fund the project. And the goal was to create a positive wave amongst students and get students to inspire each other to ultimately create a positive wave through the school, through the community, and ultimately across the country. So I visited 40,000 students, uh, 24 schools, the poorest schools and the poshest schools, the best schools in the nation and the poorest schools in the nation. Um, and in South Africa, while there's no longer apartheid, there's still tremendous economic disparity. Yeah. So the very, very poor schools were, were populated only by black kids. Now, these kids have never seen surfing. They've never seen the beach. They've been, many of them have never seen the ocean. They know nothing about it. And I'm thinking, wow, how's my message going to be received? How's, they've never heard of Sean Thompson. The teachers have never heard of Sean Thompson. But my focus is I tell stories like the Hawaiian style, talk story. Mm -hmm. Tell three or four emotional stories about courage, about commitment, about connectivity with aloha and Ubuntu being part of this connectivity concept. Mm -hmm. And then I give kids a simple code, a way that they can think and decide what their purpose is in life and how they're going to achieve that purpose. And it's really simple, 12 lines. Every line begins with our will. It's called writing your code. You write it in 30 minutes, 12 lines. Every line begins with our will. So I'd go to these schools and speak to thousands of students. Some schools I'd speak to 2,000, 3,000 students. I spoke at Kamehameha School in Hawaii. Oh. It was one of the greatest experiences um, of my life a, a couple of years ago. And when I spoke, I spoke in the chapel. And after I spoke, the chaplain said to all the students, and I think there must have been 3,000 students there, students, I want you to bow your heads and I want you to raise your arms and I want to give you to give Sean your mana. It was oh, amazing. Great. And I felt that mana, I felt that spirit. 
So I went across South Africa touring and uh, uh, creating this positive wave and getting kids to write 12 lines. Every line begins with our will. And I did the same thing this year to celebrate 50 years of pro surfing in association with this surfing contest that my dad started 50 years ago. Mm. So now we're using the sponsors from the surfing competition as well to create this positive wave. So all these companies that are in business because they want to generate a profit to you know to 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 return share to return profit to their shareholders and i'd go to these schools and at every school i'd go to i tell the kids i will equals power i will equals power and i'd get thousands and thousands and thousands of young students going i will equals power i will equals power <laughs> raising the roof of the buildings and then at some of the schools when I talk to the young students, and these are very, very poor schools, schools with pit toilets, schools with holes in the roof, and all these kids have got one thing, and they've got hope, and they've got power. And uh, I'd ask the students after I'd speak and tell them about the code, 12 lines, every line begins with, I will. I'd say to them, okay, who wants to share? Who wants to share their code? Mm -hmm. Who wants to share their code in front of their peers? Who's got the courage to do this? And first time I did it, I had this, it was an all-black school, had this little girl come up. She must have been about four foot six. Was probably the smallest little girl in the whole school. And she walks up in front of all these like really big guys and mature girls, and they're all you know seventeen to nineteen. And she looks like she's about fifteen years old. And she walks up in front of them and she puts her hands in the air like this, and she goes, "I will be a strong black woman!" <laughs> Screams that, and the whole crowd went ballistic. I bet. God, so inspirational. At, at every school I did, I'd have these you know, half a dozen kids would come up in front of everyone. They're like, read the code. I will get six oh, honors. Cool. I will be a doctor. I will be a lawyer. And you are in a school that has nothing. But these kids have this power. So that's been my mission. Fantastic. And, you know, I want to tell people that that, 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 that is... Um, my mission and I do the same thing with some of the biggest organizations in the world too you know I'll do it with a Cisco or or a GM get people to Lance every line begins with I will get CEOs that might have 10 20,000 people reporting to them you want to find your purpose spend 30 minutes sit down 12 lines every line begins with I will and then share it in your group everyone stands up together one at a time they read their code mm -hmm. so it creates this incredible connectivity and the ultimate result is that everyone's dropped a stone. Yes. Created a ripple. Built a wave. So Kelly Slater's not the only person in the world that can build waves. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> you probably created more waves than Kelly. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Um, Sean. What a Paul, treat. So honored, man. What a era. privilege to sit here and hear your Gosh, your life story, really, truly, because it's all been generated since you were very young, and all your experiences have led to this. And congratulations! No, thank you. It's been a great ride. It's a beautiful great mission ride. that you've been <laughs> able to accomplish. My God, let it continue, okay? <laughs> Are you still just as stoked about? Yeah, no, I'm. I'm, I'm just. I'm just as stoked about. Um, about surfing and about life and, and you know like most people in the world I suffered you know I lost my dad when he was so young I lost yeah. my beautiful son my wife and I lost our beautiful son and yes. we've been together for over 30, 30 years now and everyone you know we all I've come to understand that you know we all suffer and and for me like what's most important in my life is to love and be loved 
And I love going around to these schools and I love inspiring these kids. And I love seeing these kids just hear my stories and go, they're pretty cool stories. It's not my path, but it, here's a guy who's spoken about his path. And mm-hmm. now I can write my 12 lines and I can create my own path. I can create mm-hmm. my own purpose. I can find my own power. And you know, I, I love to do this. And for me, it just shows that we all have this incredible power. Yes, we all of us have this incredible power for good, but we have the same power for evil, and it's so easy to pick up a pen and write something good yeah. as it is to write something bad. It's so easy to be good to your friend, to be good to your peer at work, to be good to someone that might work for you, to be just to be good, to smile, just to be good to others. That 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 we are one of the things I've learned from reading hundreds of thousands of these lines of code from all sorts of people, from young people who might be 12 years old to CEOs of massive corporations dealing in tens of billions of dollars, is that when I read them, while they're all different, they're all the same. Mm -hmm. So we are all connected by sameness and a purity of spirit and the same basic values. Mm -hmm. And that's what we should focus on, this connectivity that binds us rather than these simple labels of who you vote for doesn't define you. Who you are is what defines you and what you do defines you. And I encourage people, write your code, 12 lines. Every line begins with our will. Write it with your family, write it with your friends, write it with your team, write it with your employees and share it and create that positive wave. Yeah. Well, no doubt you're going to inspire a lot of people. So... We can't thank you enough, Sean. My pleasure, Paul. It's been a a, a wonderful ride. (laughs) Fantastic. Thanks again. Cheers. Cheers.